Hey, this is Rob Orman. I am a physician coach and host of the Stimulus Podcast, what you're about to hear. This show focuses on stories, strategies, tactics, or sometimes just plain old information that I think will help you thrive in your career and life. If you want to dive deeper, if you are feeling burnt out, overwhelmed, or have any kind of challenge in your career that you're finding it hard to navigate, one-on-one coaching might be just what you're looking for. I spent 20 years as an emergency physician, and now as a full-time physician coach, my job is to help you get where you want to be. You can learn more at my website, roborman.com. All right, let's get to it. Let's get to it. I hope you are slaying it, kicking ass, taking names. And if you're not, that's okay too. Sometimes it's just one of those days. Today's episode, and I just want to get this right out there, is very specific for clinicians. It is very specific for emergency clinicians. It is all about what I saw it referred to as a once in a generation transformation in documentation guidelines that takes out the BS. It takes out the bloat and allows you to focus on what's important. If you hear that and you think, I got to know this. This is important to my life, to my work. Oh boy, you're in for a treat because our guest today is Dr. Jason Adler, and he's going to break it all down for you. How things are going to change, I think for the better in a couple of months. I have known Jason for a long time. He's my go-to guy when it comes to anything that has to do with coding, billing, compliance. That might sound like pocket protector, poindexter, slide rule, tape on the glasses kind of guy, but as you're going to hear, he's anything but. And he is going to get into quite a bit of detail on the show that we'll put in the show notes. We're going to put some of the important detail in the show notes. And why I say that is most of it's not going to show up on your podcatcher. There's going to be a graphic that shows what it takes to get to the level two through five in your documentation, which is going to be different than it used to be, etc. Can't do that on the podcatcher. So if you want to see that stuff, got to go to the website. Jason is a clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Maryland, where he's also the director of compliance and reimbursement. He's vice president of acute care solutions at Logix Health. And I will say, I'm so glad that there is someone who loves this stuff as much as Jason does, because it makes what could be a very dry, talking dry as in Ben Stein and Ferris Bueller level dry, boring conversation, Quite delightful. Yes, it is going to be a quite delightful conversation about documentation guidelines. And before we jump into that, I want to let you know that the Awake and Aware Physicians Conference in Sedona, Arizona, January 13th through 15th, 2023, ooh, that is right around the corner, still has some open slots if you are so interested. I'll have a link to the website for that on the show notes for this episode. Now, the curriculum for Awake and Aware has been posted, just got put up a couple days ago. So if you want to get the details on what's happening at Awaken Aware, now you can find out. Now onto our conversation with the champion of charting, Dr. Jason Adler. Say goodbye to Note Bloat. Say hello to your new friend, the 2023 Documentation Guidelines. Documentation Guidelines are a changing. They are a changing. And this is important for so many reasons, not the least of which that the current ones, the current, and it depends on when you listen to this. Cause if you, if you've saved this till 2023, then it's going to be old news, but the current guidelines, at least as far as up to 2022, as they pertain to emergency medicine, which is going to be the topic of this conversation, I'm going to say, Jason, I'm going to say they are onerous. They are burdensome. They are arduous. And way too often they lead to more bun than burger reference, 1980s, more chaff than wheat. More fluff than more fluff, more bloat, and more time, I think, spending your energy on low value stuff when you've already got too much stuff to do. And I don't know if I'm getting my point across here, but I, let me just put it this way I revile the current documentation guidelines with the white hot intensity of 1,000 suns because they do not respect the clinician, the patient, and the relationship between them. Hang on, I got to get my blood pressure a little higher here. And It turns out that a doctor or any clinician becomes a de facto coder with the current guidelines. And except for very few people, they don't want to be coders. They want to be clinicians. (sighs) Thank you for allowing me that screed. 
diatribe, polemic, etc. So before we reveal the good news, how on earth did we get to where we are now with these absolutely horrendous documentation guidelines? Well, let's start off with the good news is that <laughs> we've had these guidelines with us for the past 27 years. They were introduced in 1995. And at the time, it was a big deal. But more importantly, I think that we don't want to bury the lead here. We have 100 days from today until we will have brand new guidelines. Now, that will be a 28-year gap. But the good news is change is coming. Let's go back to 1995 and just set a foundation to how we got to where we are, because this is what people experience. This is, you know, I've, all right, to get to a level five, I need all of these things in the HMP. I need the review of systems and all these things in the physical exam. And it's, you've got to hit all of these points where this means absolutely nothing to this encounter, yet I need to put my energy and time into doing this, or at least have some sort of a template that pops up and ay ay ay. So the transition to the 95 guidelines that began probably around 94, and to really understand them, I think you have to look in the history books, both for myself and for you and most of the listeners out there, because none of us were practicing medicine. Very few of us were, at least. Yeah. That's when I graduated med school. So I don't All know right. if you could call it practicing medicine. Yeah. Well, you no, were it was literally definitely practicing. Literally practicing. And I was yeah, fumbling through. When you look through the labor force in emergency medicine, a very small percentage were practicing at that transition. And I think it was a big deal and a big step for everybody. And at that time, it was a huge deal. And I think part of those guidelines included a lot of very specific detail related to the history, the exam, somewhat a little bit in the medical decision-making section, but it was the first of its kind. It was our first iteration. And if you look through the evolution of medicine subsequent to those 95 guidelines, it seems as though a lot of information was wrapped around that. In other words, that was the time that the T-sheets came out. It was the time that the EMRs started to really develop and evolve. I think more on a personal level when working at the bedside, you started to see behind the skin of the EMRs, you saw little bit more auto imports. And then I think at the clinical side, you found yourself clicking a lot of buttons. And over the subsequent years, there were, became a sense of fatigue. And this isn't a astute observation. There's good data to support this. We know that sitting at the computer causes fatigue, EMR fatigue, and is not necessarily good for wellness. And the overarching message moving forward is that with these new set of guidelines that are coming out, there might be an opportunity to reduce some of the clicks that we're doing at the bedside. And more importantly, when you really study what's written, I see, we see an opportunity to really focus on the stuff that matters to us at the bedside. And the story here is bringing the bedside over to the medical record. And that could be a positive one. With the current guidelines, let's just use the level five, which is kind of like this, you know, like the golden child documentation. You know, you kind of get downcoded because you don't put the stuff that you, you're supposed to put in there, you know, hit all of these points in the H&P. What makes it better? What makes it worse? What does it radiate? All, you know, had, like what was going on in 1974 when you were having this pain? That's what happens now. You've got to hit all of these points in the H&P. You've got to hit or the H, you got to fit all these points in the H and then you've got the review of systems and you've got to hit all of these review of systems. And I'm going to honestly say that when I would ask the review of systems, do you remember there was this guy, you were really little when this happened. There was this guy who was this really fast talker and that was his comedy bit or somebody who's giving the a disclaimer for a, a medication on TV, like, I'd say, have you had any shortness of breath, sore throat, rash, and it would just be like an auctioneer because it was just, this is useless if it was something that was important on that review of systems. Okay, I want to ask, well, have you had shortness of breath? You get more short breath and you lie flat. I don't care what has been happening with rashes or what's been happening with your eyes and all of these other things. And then on the exam, I've got somebody with an ankle injury. I don't really need to listen to their lungs or their heart. It was all this bloat just for the sake of doing this document. Well, I guess you wouldn't do a level five for an ankle, but it's not a perfect example. Like all of this crap that went in there, this is such a waste of time. And what is happening with that in the new guidelines? So everything you're referring to, and I would hope to think that historically, currently, and in the past, when people make their medical records, you document based on what you do. That's always the case. And maybe there was some circumstance where you had a medication refill 
and it became natural to you to listen to the heart and lungs. You started putting it on there. Perfect. Um, That's a perfect example. Yes. It's like, I'm out of my lithium. I need some lithium. And like, oh, okay, well, I need to do a little bit of physical exam here to, I don't know, to, to do it rather than saying, oh yeah, your vitals look fine. Off, off, here's your lithium. Off you go. So you actively do listen to the heart and lungs, then you document that and then things where they land and that that's yeah. one thing <laughs> yeah, right. and that's that's you don't want to talk about committing fraud here that <laughs> you're documenting what you don't do yes but sally forth moving forward in january 1 2023 we have a brand new set of documentation guidelines and i think not to bury the lead the most important piece to start the top off is that the history and the exam will no longer be scored to level your chart and by leveling i'm referring to reimbursement based purposes but you get some really good information here about what the expectation is in making a medical record for seeing all patients and coming right from the guidelines themselves. I want to quote this here. The nature and the extent of the history and or physical exam is determined by the treating physician reporting the service. Determined by the treating physician reporting the service. So to the point that you just made of this conversation and dialogue externally about HPI elements, past family social history, review of system. All of that is not included in any of these guidelines anywhere, including the exam. In fact, go down a paragraph deeper, it says, the main purpose of documentation is to support care of the patient by current and future healthcare teams. Wow. Just take a moment and bathe in that for a second now. So we have direct guidance saying that the intent of the medical record is to support care of the patient and future healthcare teams. No more element counting on the history section or the exam section. I think that's a really powerful message to our community because to your point that you made earlier, there are some that spend a lot of time writing on things that have more or less value and we perceive as more or less value in some cases. No more history or an exam. Now, the expectation, and this is also another quote, is that we perform a medically appropriate history and exam. And I think that's a really nice way of describing you go back to that med refill depending on what the medication is, what the condition is, if there was anything else that came out in the history, you determine appropriately what you choose to document related to that, that exam point. And that really brings the autonomy back to the clinician in a way that makes sense. It can reduce no blow. As you say that, I'm, I'm thinking about, like, let's say somebody presents with pleuritic chest pain and you're documenting the history. It's something that you'll see once or twice a week or once or twice a shift. And you're thinking through, okay, what am I going to do with this? And I'm thinking about like the quanta of energy that you have during a shift and the amount of focus that you have. So putting down this history, this is a 45-year-old man who presents the emergency department with two days of right-sided pleuritic chest pain. There's been no trauma. It began spontaneously. It's non-positional. Okay. Well, here's some important things that I want to know. But I will say in the back of my mind, and even at year 21 of attendinghood, I was thinking, am I hitting all of my points for this thing? You know, it was reflex, but I still had to remember if I was getting the grid. And it took my energy to, to think that, all right, am I hitting all these things versus, hey, let me just say what's going on. I don't need to think about the review systems or all these things. And I can just get into what's important, which is figuring out and discussing what's actually happening with this patient. What am I doing? What am I thinking? Versus all of this other stuff that I'm needing to click boxes for the sake of clicking boxes rather than important high value cognitive tasks. There's so many ripples of just getting rid of those requirements. I think we've developed some muscle memory and you're speaking to culture and engagement with the evolution of the electronic medical record and what software you've been working with and how it's formulated and, and what the note looks like. And there is that noise, I guess, in the background that some may feel more than others. What you're really speaking to is now it's liberating to not have that noise in your mind as it relates to the history and the exam section. Now, I'm not sure for some how much it's there or how much it belongs there and how it got there. It just, for some, that it is there. And I think that when we take care of patients, the emphasis is to just do that and really ignore that noise. But with these new guidelines, there should be much less. That's, okay. that's critically important, is that a medically appropriate history and exam are reflected in the guidelines, and that's all that it references. It's nothing else above the medical decision-making section. So history, 
physical, review of systems, past medical, social, all that stuff. It very well may be important for you to document that for whatever is going on with this patient. But as far as what is the requirement, that's out. So let's talk about what's in. What's the big picture here, kind of the holistic view of the EMR that this new guideline gets into? For me, when I read these guidelines, I think the bigger story is focusing on medical decision-making, which, which is really true for everybody, but it brings the bedside to the work that we're doing. It's the cognitive work, the decision-making. It's the work that we do on the subconscious quite frequently, as you said, when you went through HPI, into the conscious just to demonstrate the work that's being done in the care of the patient. And that's something that has been emphasized in the past, and I appreciate that, moving forward by removing the elements of the history and the exam, that moves away. Now it's a story about medical decision-making, and it has a sensitivity towards a much more modern and contemporaneous set of guidelines that reflect the modern medicine that we do every day. So when someone is creating a medical record, or they're creating a chart, who's the audience that they're making this for? It's a great question. So obviously, when we're speaking to coding guidelines, you have coders and then auditors. Those two people, groups of people may be reading a chart. I think within your hospital, you've got consultants. You also have future healthcare providers that might read old records. They read your charts. I think within the organization or hospital itself, you've got, we'll just say committee people. You've got stroke, sepsis, peer review. If there's an unfortunate outcome, maybe an attorney may be involved with the chart. But most interesting, as of last year, patients now have access to the chart. And I think we can all relate to the fact that at least once over the past year or so in treating patients, we've gotten results back and gone to do a quick update to the patient. And you walk in, I want to share my results. And they've said to you, I've, I know I got them. They're looking at their smartphone. They have the results already, <laughs> right? Yeah. And yeah. overall, if you can go forward into making the medical record being mindful and sensitive to the people who read the chart at the end, I think the story becomes less maybe about the guidelines and more about creating a meaningful medical record that withstands the test of time. And while there are rules within these guidelines, and we can talk about them today of what they acknowledge and value, I still go back to the true north, which is we are here for our patients. We value our bedside time. And as part of that process, we will make a medical record. In doing the latter, we want to make one that makes sense. It's a coherent and cognitive representation of the work done for the care of the patient. Emergency medicine is acute episodic care. The patients that we walk into the rooms to, it could be the worst day of their month, week, life. It's a blessing to have the opportunity to do this type of work. And we all know that the departments can be chaotic at times. Over time, the medical record is a legal document that lives forever. And just to be aware of that, there is an opportunity to capture highlights of the visit that will offer potentially some risk reduction. It can offer some clarity for a future clinician reading the note. Maybe it goes into the reimbursement space. It's a medical record and we want it to be done well. So I think overall, I, I focus more on writing a well-written note more so than dissecting the individual guidelines, though I recognize we're going to do some of that today. I want to get into the important points or the uh, maybe the bullet points for these new guidelines, the things, the things that you think are important to take home. And as we get into this, and you were saying earlier that the MDM, the medical decision-making is really valued. I've worked with some incredible clinicians over the years, almost always older than me. So they predated 1995. They would have these incredible history and physicals. Say somebody with appendicitis, you know, somebody comes in, it's like this weird thing and, you know, they don't know what's going on. They're doing these meds and these workups and all this stuff. And you've got this history, physical, diagnostic data, diagnosis, acute appendicitis. And wait, you're not putting your thought process in there. Why? It's obvious. CAT scan showed appendicitis. <laughs> like, well, I guess that's, I don't know, uh, an expedient way to do it. But it sounds like that's not really what is going to be supported going forward. Well, moving forward, there's a lot of key components of what we do really well every day with patients that are valued 
within these guidelines. You could talk about your differential diagnosis and how comorbidities drive your workup. The combination of the two, patient comes in, non-traumatic back pain has a different differential, young patient has a different differential than a patient who has non-traumatic back pain and maybe has a history of IV drug abuse and or fever. And those are two very different patients, though the chief complaint is the same. So a targeted differential based on your history is a reasonable thing to document in many cases. And everyone will have their own style as to how comfortable they are with how much of a differential they put in. But the comorbidities really speak to risk stratification. Think about chest pain. We have those conversations naturally with patients all the time. Diabetes, hypertension, do you smoke? We ask those questions. You see a patient with shortness of breath, you're concerned about PE. We ask about OCP use in females and recent travel. All these risk factors and comorbidities can come into play in a way that helps us stratify our risk. And those conversations, when documented, support the complexity of the care that we provide to the patient in real time. These guidelines acknowledge that. And to me, that's very refreshing. All right. Well, let's get into it. Hit me with some of the high points of what is value here and where people may consider shifting their attention to add more weight in their documentation. I think capturing the encounter as it occurs offers the most weight possible. Ah. And the rest will work itself out. I see a lot of things in these guidelines that I often do, but don't always document that we can create a little better alignment. For example, you'd look about any type of history you obtain from a non-patient source. Now, that has three different buckets. You could have a non-patient historian. So whether you're talking to EMS, maybe law enforcement, caregivers and parents, that's new for 2023. Parents, a history from parent is a non-patient historian and valued in these guidelines. Second area would be discussion on management with other providers. You have an admitting discussion with a hospitalist. If you have a conversation with a consultant, if you have a discussion with a referring clinician, it could even be sometimes experts or other social work, case management. These conversations are part of our daily workflow in many cases, and they are acknowledged in the guideline. Also, how about record review? We look at old records. And in the case for 2023, the guidelines recognize non-ED record review. And really what that means is inpatient notes, outpatient notes, old studies that were reviewed. So if you see a patient with severe sepsis or concern for septic shock, and you want to give that bolus, and I'm not going to break down whether that's a good or bad thing on this discussion here, but you want to check an old echocardiogram. I think we do that very frequently. And sometimes we choose not to give the bolus based on a low EF. Well, how do we know that? In most cases, it's not coming from the patient. And in many cases, it does come from that old record review. So we just created a nice little area of things that are often done, but not always documented that are valued in the guideline. And it's most important when that information obtained from an outside source, a non-patient source, is used to advocate and treat the patient in front of you. As long as it's integrated into the care of the patient, I think it's valuable to put in the medical record. Now, it's a secondary benefit that the guidelines acknowledge that. But if we're making treatment decisions based on something that we're told and we're doing verification, that's worthwhile to put in the medical record, in my opinion. So information from a non-patient source, be clear about what's happening there. So if you have an outside historian, EMS, law enforcement, caregivers, parents, loved ones, be specific about where the information comes from. So you've got someone who presents with altered mental status. 67-year-old man presents with altered mental status. He has been blah, 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 blah. 67-year-old man presents with history of altered mental status per EMS, patient this, that, and the other thing. Per patient's daughter, this, that, and the other thing. And you're attributing that information to the source. And that is valued in this new guideline. It is. And I think it's important to declare where you got it from. Because otherwise, the default is that the patient told you, or it's just not said at all, which leaves room for criticism. You don't know where it came from. And I don't want to make the declaration that the last time the patient was normal was exactly 7.30 p.m. Someone told me that. If it's not the patient, the patient comes in a phasic. Where is that information coming from? EMS says, daughter at home, last saw patient well at 9 a.m. That's very clear to me. 
just saying patient last known well, 9am. Well, what if there's a scenario that someone else saw her much later or earlier, and they say that they called the hospital to tell you, they talked to you, and it's not on the record. The value to me is just being very clear about attributing information that you use for treatment decisions when it doesn't come from the patient to you directly. Let's take a break for a moment and talk about today's sponsor. Yes, this episode is sponsored by IV Clinicians, IVY Clinicians. Bottom line, IV is the game-changing search engine for the emergency medicine job market. It's like Zillow, but for jobs in EM. So if you are a doc, a PA, or an NP, and even considering a job in EM or a job change or just want to see what's out there, this is where you go. And why is that? If you have ever looked for a job in emergency medicine, you've probably experienced the suboptimal process hunting for these questions. What jobs are in the area I'm interested in, right? The, the big question. Then who's the contact person? And even, you know, what are these EDs like? Until now, this information has been pretty challenging to find. And I'd say at best, scattershot. I've personally been there. Many of my clients have been there. The status quo when I think about this, it's like being in an escape room of job searching and the clues really suck. IB Clinician solves all that. They've mapped out the US emergency medicine employer market, the whole thing. That's over 5,500 EDs. And then in their search engine, you type in the geographic area you're interested in and boom, all of the emergency departments come up with the deets the details on their inner workings. And you see something you like and click and you connect with a recruiter for that ED. It is so easy. I was thinking about this. It's so easy that even the most technophobic will love it. So you think about the doc you work with who just howls at the moon anytime there's a computer involved, even they will love it. And you know what else they'll love that you'll love? It's free, F-R-E-E, free for clinicians. Just give it a try. Just take it for a test drive. Even if you love your job, it's like, I don't want to go anywhere. Just see what it's like. Or if you're curious, like, ah, oh, what else is out there? Or maybe you're even feeling a little stuck. And it's like, you know what? I'm going to see what my options are. Check it out at Ivy Clinicians, ivyclinicians.io. Say someone comes in with a wound infection from a laceration that was repaired by one of your partners a, a couple days ago. And you, pull, and you pull open that chart. That's the only record that they have is from your same ED and you pulling it up in Epic or whatever. It's like, oh, let me just kind of see what happened, et cetera. Does that count as external record review? It doesn't in these guidelines. Okay. And that really goes back to, I think, a key point that we're talking about is we want to document a meaningful medical record that will stand the test of time not necessarily document towards any percent of any any rules out there. So yeah. for yeah. external record review, that's, you know, 95, it was just on most coding tools said review of old records. And it was a little bit ambiguous. This is more concrete, actually, in non-ED records. And sometimes or there is reference to a different specialty, different practice, different institution. And there's very clear rules around what is considered to be an old record. And not to get into the coding weeds, I would just pull back and say, anytime we get a piece of information that's not from the patient, we should reference it and attribute credit to them to where you got it from. If in the example that you offered, you look at an old ED record of your same group, same practice, same hospital, that's not credited in these guidelines. But does that mean it should not be documented? Of course, it should be documented. That is critical information focused on the care of the patient. So the big picture still is focusing on what information is assimilated towards the care of the patient? You said something in passing that I think is really impactful, and that is capturing the ED course as it occurs. So I was documenting a certain way for, I don't know, 12 years or so, 12, 13 years. And I would have a very detailed paragraph about all the things I thought and maybe some things that I did. It looked like a Celtic knot. I worked with a doc named Dr. Youngblood, and she was super efficient. And her notes were simple yet incredibly clean. And she would say, patient presents with right-sided pleuritic chest pain. Differential includes, but is not limited to pulmonary embolism, pneumothorax, 
blah, blah, all the stuff. Plan it this time is to do X, Y, Z. And then you would have ED course. And she had, she would have dash, old records reviewed, anything information, report from EMS, discussed with, you know, patient's neighbor, x-ray obtained. Every point of action and thought had a little dash and then a note of what happened and how that adjusted the decision. And then dash, discuss results with patient. Patient has a, you know, 30% pneumothorax, offered hospitalization, shared decision-making, all of these things, patient discharged home. And then there'd be like a little discussion about the differential diagnoses and all the things that were ruled in and ruled out. It, it sounds like it's protracted, but it was really efficient because you could just come back to your chart and just put in a little note about, about what's happening. And Epic allows you to do this in real time, so let's do other EMRs. What do you think of the Youngblood method? That sounds great. And I think what you're alluding to is when you see a well-written MDM note, you know it. Yeah. Yeah. You know it when you see it. You know it when you see it. And you want to be sensitive to the environment that we're working in, which over the past few years has been challenging for everyone in emergency medicine. And I think when you go through what we went through, the documentation part might fall by the wayside at times. And people are doing the best with the resources that they had. That said, the value of the note is not inconsequential. And to your point of referencing, I just, I have this mentor. She made an amazing note. And every time I looked at it, it just made sense to me. I think that's really something we all would want to get to. And it's different for each person. Some people feel more comfortable writing a longer differential than a shorter differential. Some people feel more comfortable doing multiple reassessments. They may do fewer reassessments depending on the clinical condition and their own style. So when you put it all together, what is the middle, right? What are the, what's the most common denominator of a medical decision-making note that another person could read and say, that's a well-written note? And it might be something as simple as including a form of targeted differential, bringing in comorbidities where they're pertinent to describe, as you mentioned, where, what we're diagnostically looking up for and what we're excluding. Sometimes it's by history, you could just say, no rash, not consistent with zoster, right? You've excluded that based on your exam. And assessments and reassessments, response to treatment, those things all matter. It shows engagement with the patient in my mind. You are interacting with the patient every time you go by after you're given analgesics or antiemetics, improving, worsening. I think the more we write contemporaneously, the better off we are. I want to get back to these guidelines here and some of the bullet points. So we were talking about information from a non-patient source. We got pretty deep into that. And I want to get back to a couple of other things, a couple of other big bullets, and you had mentioned them before, and hit on differential diagnosis demonstrates complexity of care. What does that mean? I think using a chest pain example can be helpful. We all know some patients who come in with chest pain after you've done your differential, your diagnostic studies might just be a chest x-ray and a EKG. Others might end up getting blood work and a CTA. And how do we get there? For every person out there, it might be a different pathway and it might be a different process. And documenting your rationale of what you're including and excluding within that differential does offer value and is represented in these guidelines. And then comorbidities are a second layer of showing the complexity of the care, just sticking with chest pain, hypertension, diabetes, active nicotine use. That changes the risk stratification of the patient. So adding that, we can spend a lot of time on this. I think our community does a pretty good job of it already. Mm -hmm. It's hard to find a chart that doesn't say 55-year-old male active smoker, history of diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, comes in with three days of substernal chest pain. I think we intrinsically bring that into the record, period. These guidelines also reflect that. Yeah, for, and the example using before, 30-year-old patient presents with back pain. And whether or not they have a history of IV drug use significantly changes the differential diagnosis, the complexity of the care, and that is something to attend to in your documentation. A more subtle example might be someone with a cellulitis and diabetes or prediabetes. And maybe with the combination of diabetes, you either discharge them and make it clear, I really want you to follow it with your PCP. And if anything gets worse, I need you to come back versus maybe admitting that patient. And in the absence of that comorbidity, you might not be documenting that or thinking about that. It changes the risk stratification. It's a little subtle for that example, but that's, that's where I think 
comorbidities really show up. The complexity of the care does change. I think we all could agree that peripheral artery disease, IV drug abuse, HIV, some of these comorbidities dramatically change the risk of patients presenting complaints. But on the more subtle lines, there's lots of comorbidities that, that also make a difference as well, and, and capturing that are valued in the guideline. Here's something I think is really interesting. And historically, or at least since 95, what has been valued has been doing stuff, right? Like the more you do, the more you order, like the more, I I say like the more points you get or the more credit you get or, or, or whatever. And now it seems like you get credit for actually not doing stuff. That's a really good point you brought up, Rob. So you're absolutely correct. The 95 guidelines awarded credits or valued active ordering of studies or images. You're talking about lab tests. You're talking about radiologic images and tracings. And you were awarded points in those old guidelines for that. Think about CTs for a moment. And in the past, yeah, that, that's absolutely true. You ordered a CT, you got credit on the 95 documentation guidelines. Now, 28 years later, as of January 1, 2023... You will get the same credit if you don't order the CT, so long as you provide a rationale and thought process as to how you got there. And to me, that really reflects a much more modern and contemporaneous medicine. When you look at the way medicine has evolved, I mean, just the last two years, it's evolved quite a bit. Over time, we aren't scanning as many people as we had in the past because we now have good scoring scales, whether it be PERC or Nexus or PCARN, or have a heightened sensitivity towards not just overutilizing imaging. It's expensive to the patient. It's expensive by health. There's risk with additional studies that may not be needed. It's time-consuming that affects the flow of the department and your ability to manage the department. We all know that doing the right number of CTs is a better way to go, and extra CTs can be problematic. So it's refreshing to read guidelines that offer value and recognize that if you don't order CT, you get that same amount of credit that you did in the past. And that's not just for CTs, it's also for prescription drug management. So in that case, if you've ever had a patient in April come in saying, I'm here for my I'm here for my ZPAC, my antibiotic, maybe they have seasonal rhinitis or some other viral syndrome. And a lot of the time that you spend having a conversation with that patient, or if it's a child with their parents, about actually we could treat it this way. We don't need to use an antibiotic. That's valuable bedside time that is very valuable to us. That's what we care about. By documenting that conversation, now you're getting the shared decision-making. But you would get credit for prescription drug management as if you had given the antibiotic, even though you're not. And that, to me, is just very refreshing. So you get credit for providing better medicine. Yeah. Imagine that. Where do we start this conversation? The history and the exam are no longer scored for the medical record. All you need to document is what is medically appropriate. Now we're shifting down to diagnostic testing and imaging. We're talking about shared decision-making. Quote it right here. Ordering a test may include those considered but not selected after shared decision-making. Patient may request diagnostic imaging that is not medically necessary for their condition. You are credited for performing, as you said, better medicine. And, And that 20 years is a big gap in medicine. And I think that the medicine has evolved very cleanly over time. And now we're having a big stair-step evolution in the guidelines that reflect what we do most often and value the time that we value ourselves, which is at the bedside. Let's get into population health. Walk me through this population health aspect of the new guideline. This is a really interesting piece of the 2023 documentation guidelines because it caught me by surprise. And the first thing I would offer, there is a big distinction between the word stability in documentation guidelines and what we do in clinical medicine. So there are stable chronic conditions and then there's unstable chronic conditions. And just quoting from what we have in front of us, stable for the purposes of categorizing comorbidities in the MDM is defined by specific treatment goals for an individual patient. A patient who is not at his or her treatment goal is not stable, even if the condition is not changed and there's no short-term threat to life or function. Let's pull back for a moment. We're talking about population health now. We've talked about comorbidities a little bit. In this same area within the guidelines, they talk about asymptomatic hypertension. So when I first read this, and they're saying stable is defined as treated and at goal, chronic is one year to the end of life. If it's treated and not at goal, it's by definition unstable, which really goes to moderate 
medical decision making. I thought to myself, the outpatient docs are going to read the same set of rules and they're going to say asymptomatic hypertension based on this, which is the example used, is unstable. And then they're going to send every single patient with asymptomatic hypertension to the emergency room. I thought about that. And then I realized that that happens often. Here's the story that I see within the guidelines about population health. Asymptomatic hypertension, uncontrolled diabetes. If you make an attempt to address an underlying problem, and we should define problem addressed because when people hear that, maybe you're thinking with hypertension, we're talking about head CTs and x-rays and troponins, creatinins, EKGs. No. If someone comes in with asymptomatic hypertension, every clinician will determine the best way to manage that. But some in some patients with asymptomatic hypertension will just have a conversation and a referral to their primary care doctor. These guidelines acknowledge that and offer credit or acknowledge the value in having that conversation and doing that referral. In a way, you are addressing a problem without having the conversation of ordering studies. It's really just as simple as, it looks like your blood pressure is a little bit high today. You might have early hypertension, however you want to frame it. And then you make a referral. That's a problem addressed. And when you have a problem adjust, you get credit within the guidelines for that. And what that speaks to me is a broader approach to population health that we can treat a lot of conditions, especially traumatic ankle sprains, and that gets better and all that. But if we could identify asymptomatic hypertension, if we can identify a problem that could potentially have long-term morbidity, and in some cases, mortality, make a referral, that could really change lives. And I think some in the community get frustrated with Oh, just hypertension, it's a referral. But what are we talking about doing? We're talking about having a conversation. We are reviewing some studies and maybe potentially just repeating the blood pressure and then making sure they get ad- adequate follow-up. Something as simple as that is also beautiful within emergency medicine. It's not a halo procedure, one of these high acuity, low current procedures or stuff we all get excited about. But this is the stuff that could really change lives. And as an emergency physician myself, it feels good to know that we get credit that we can do this stuff and it can make a difference. And it's also valued within the guideline. Is that stable, unstable uh, part of the ICD-10? You know, like hypertension, unstable, gout, unstable? No, nothing to do with that. Now, would you say that in your discussion? Patient presents with a blood pressure of 180 over 100. They have been on three antihypertensives for the past year. Blood pressure is unchanged. Would you use that unstable word in your discussion or does that not matter? It's just if you address it, you're addressing it. Yeah, I would never say that. Okay. Uh, because unstable means something very different in the emergency department. No, I would, I would never say that. That's not yeah. the intent. I, and that's this, the recurrent theme of this conversation is that our goal is to minimize the note bloat. We want to be at the bedside and to really just make a well-written note. And if you accomplish that, Everything else will take care of itself. Now, if we contrast 95 to 2023, you'll find pretty quickly that the stuff that we naturally do, and some things naturally do and rarely document, will be more valuable on the guidelines than they were in the past. I see an opportunity to realign and reimagine the way that we do our notes that focuses on the stuff that really matters. So to your question specifically, you ask about how would you frame that? If a patient comes in with any complaint, complaint X, and you notice they have elevated blood pressure. I think good form, oftentimes before anyone is discharged, we look at vital signs, right? That's that's a thing to look at vital signs before patients are discharged. We want to make sure things are okay. And if you identify asymptomatic, if the patient's hypertensive while they're there, maybe you attribute it to pain. Maybe you attribute it to something else. Every case is unique. But if someone has significantly elevated blood pressure, they don't carry that diagnosis. A note as simple as saying, patient's BP was this, repeated it at SAT, recommend he or she follow up with the primary care for further evaluation and care, that is addressing a problem. You are doing something. And that, to me, feels good. Let's talk about social determinants of health. It's important in these guidelines. And here's what that means. And then how do you apply that in your documentation? It's a great question. and. The fact that these guidelines acknowledge social determinants of health shows a sense of progress that the 95 guidelines certainly did not have, and is much more modern and contemporary as well. We're talking about economic and social conditions that influence the health of people in their communities. And depending on your practice location, it might be 
more common that you see a patient with a social determinant of health than others. If you've, as, as an emergency physician, if you have ever given a patient an inhaler instead of a NEB with the intent of having them keep it because you know they're not able to fill it because they're so expensive, that patient may have a social determinant of health. If your hospital has an arrangement with a rideshare organization where you help people get out of the hospital using Uber or Lyft, if you have a process in place whereby you give a patient antibiotics to go or a viral pack to go, there might be a reason for that that includes social determinants of health as well. In terms of the documentation, I, I don't think it's anything more than saying patient was given a viral pack to go and you've declared it what it is. What's important to me is that these guidelines acknowledge that SDOH exists and allows you the opportunity to get credit for it. But let me pull back for a second and talk about the bigger picture. If you put it on the diagnosis line, then it gets captured in a little bit of a different way. The diagnosis lines, if I were to ask you, what, what, let's play word association. Okay. I say ICD-10. What's the first thing you think of? First thing I think is injury secondary to being sucked into jet engine. Sec- uh, subsequent encounter. <laughs> the next is injury by hitman. I think. Okay. That, <laughs> I don't know. This one, that's this one. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> sucked into a jet engine. Subsequent encounter. That's what matters most. That's that's that generally will correlate to a high level of service in most cases, okay. so long as it's documented appropriately. If you look I don't at know the old, what this is what you're looking for. If you look at the old records and you identify the previous time that they were sucked into a jet engine, and you talk to a consultant involved, the jet engine consulting service, you're going to get there. But most importantly, the ICD-10 code set is trademarked by the World Health Organization. And the I stands for, it's the International Classification of Disease. This has nothing to do with the US. It's an international classification of disease trademarked by the World Health Organization. And these codes are updated once a year. We had a rare exception where they were updated more frequently recently. And the intent of these codes are for epidemiologic tracking of illness and disease. Rob, can you think of a time in the past two years where there was value in epidemiologic tracking of illness <laughs> or disease? Not only value, but a lot of controversy. <laughs> yes. So, so these diagnosis Indeed. lines, they matter. And it shows what is being seen in your department. And if you're looking to fix a problem, I think the first step is to recognize that it exists and to actually see it. This may not be commonly known, but most of the information that flies through for claim submissions and things like that, it's it's really just the diagnosis lines. They a lot of places don't look at charts themselves. So adding it there raises visibility. That's where most of the COVID data came from, is through a lot of claims form and diagnosis lines. So if you're in a place that sees social determinants of health, and some examples of diagnosis could be something as simple as homelessness or problems related to housing instability and economic circumstance. Maybe there's a lack of transportation, insufficient social insurance. There's a lot of these things. They're called Z codes. But by putting it in the diagnosis lines, what you're doing is you are giving visibility to what your department is seeing, raising visibility to what your hospital is treating. As it grows to the state level, now you might be able to have or change state funding, maybe to a Medicaid program over what the health status is and determinants are for the people in your state. If multiple states do this. Now you're talking about changing national health policy. We just went from social determinants of health are recognized on documentation guidelines for your individual chart. That's a true statement. But I think there's much more mission here as well. If there are patients that you see that have a determinant and you document it, and it, again, it's not onerous. It's, it could be as simple as arranged ride to go home or gave an antibiotic to go pack, then you can raise visibility to the work that's being done in your department more accurately capture what's being done in your department. So you've got someone who needs a rideshare. I, I'm just pulling up some of these Z codes right now, these ICD-10 Z codes. Would you put in your documentation, this is Z59.641, unable to pay for transportation for medical appointments or prescriptions? The short answer is no. No. Okay. If someone is homeless and you write homeless as a fourth or fifth diagnosis, that's totally appropriate. And you often will write in the medical decision-making section that may maybe they do have a lack of adequate housing. Maybe we start getting into our lexicon. You mentioned in your example, asthma. Well, asthma has a lot of codes to it. You don't know the exact 
sequence of codes that are used for asthma, just like you're not expected to know the exact sequence of codes for social determinants of health. We've got uh, a couple more bullets here. Independent interpretation of images or studies. I'm going to ask you a question, actually. Yeah. Yeah. What percentage of EKGs done in your emergency departments are being read by non-emergency physicians and of which treatment decisions are being made? So one ED I worked in, the emergency clinician read 100% of the EKGs and then acted on those in real time. And then within the next couple of days, either the hospitalist or cardiologist would read it and then bill for it. And actually that ha- that's happened in the last couple of hospitals I, I work for. Yeah. I think in most places, putting the billing piece aside for a moment, Yeah, in most places, the EKGs are read by emergency physicians and treatment decisions are based off that interpretation. Yes. I've gotten a panic call from the lab about a potassium. I've gotten a panic call from radiology about a pneumothorax. I've never had a panic call from cardiology about a T-wave inversion or any type of abnormality that they're seeing in real time while the patient's in front of me. So just using EKGs as an example, that's something that in a way we own and we make treatment decisions based off. So if we are going to make a treatment decision, there is value in documenting that it is your interpretation. And in doing so, that is also credited within the guidelines. And that's really something that I think will help our specialty. When you look at an EKG and make it treatment decision, you would document EKG interpreted by me shows what, if you're doing it for electrolyte abnormalities, maybe you're just looking at the QTC and the intervals, right? Just documenting that you looked at the EKG and your interpretation is. I think we do this, we look at studies all the time, EKGs, x-rays, ultrasounds, just like with a discussion with a family member, if you are discussion with EMS, if you don't declare that EMS was the one that gave that information, in some cases you could write point of care ultrasound, fast, negative, it's not clear who did the study. And that's not clear that even your interpretation. Bigger picture, we're talking about being more purposeful and direct about owning the work that we do in creating the medical record. And if we just do that, everything with these guidelines will fall into place. Point of care, limited bedside ultrasound, fast, performed and interpreted by me, negative for free fluid. Done question for you on that and and this is and this is outside of the billing piece but kind of making the clean chart is using epic that's what i was last using so you can import the radiology final read you can import the radiology whole read into your chart in your diagnostic data section and you kind of do your quick wet reads and then you also have the radiology read in there as part as part of the diagnostic data and i'm curious as how to reconcile that based on independent interpretation of images or studies? Because there's two people looking at it independently, and then the emergency clinician also looks at what the radiologist says. There's kind of this circle or a triangle going on. There's something going on. Something's and, going on. Something's and I'll tell you, we're, we're talking about 95, 2023. When you say wet read, that's more, 90, that's more 1995. <laughs> what, they still say it. They still say wet read. I've heard more prelim, prelim, prelim interpretation. <sighs> Man, wet, wet, wet read was when they... Printed something out, wrote wet read negative or positive <laughs> pneumo, and then faxed it over to you, and then you scanned it in something. Yeah. So what you're saying is there are multiple people looking at the same study, and they're all making decisions off of what they see. And then sometimes there's some overlap in what people are looking at, whether it be the physician, emergency physician, like the radiology, and or the radiologist even calling the emergency physician, asking what the clinical scenario is. There, there's a lot of blending there, and everyone will have their own style. Everyone will figure out a way in a workflow that works for them. I think, well, I know with these guidelines, if you do an independent interpretation, a few things are true. If you look at a study, you do an independent interpretation and you want to take ownership of that, you just can document it as is. It doesn't have to be held to the standard of a radiologist. I think that it's a personal decision. There might be some risk implications there, and that's really dependent upon the individual clinician. I think EKGs, you really can't, I mean, we all read our own EKGs. I don't know how I mean, I guess you could leave it blank, but I think we're reading them all and we're interpreting them all and it affects treatment decisions for them all. And I don't see the downside in documenting that because you're declaring what you see. The radiology piece is a little bit more complicated and mm-hmm. physician specific. But you know, I don't have an issue with saying that 
if you're looking for a pneumo and that was your indication for the study and you don't see a large pneumo and then, you know, referencing the radiology report, that's also loud. But we're really getting into the more clinical aspect of things. And that's yeah. that's really clinician dependent, I think. Yeah. Something more clear cut. You're going to give someone an antipsychotic EKG order prior to antipsychotic interpreted by me, QTC, 480, antipsychotic given. That's it. Done. Okay. That, that, yeah, that would be it. Consideration of escalation or de-escalation of care. Documenting this. What does that mean? Yeah, this is on the risk component of these documentation guidelines. And there's three different components. There's complexity of problems addressed. There's data. There's risk. And I've tried not to go there because I want to keep the discussion big picture and just focused on a well-written note. Consideration of escalation or hospitalization Escalation of care or hospitalization is highly valued in these guidelines. It's actually considered high risk on the guidelines themselves. If you have a patient who you are considering admitting, and it could be any patient that is admitted or someone that you even considered admitting, and, and you think about kidney stones or someone with an asthma exacerbation, there are patients you walk in the room and then you walk out and you know with an 85% certainty whether they're staying or going. And there's also patients that you're just not sure. And you might be considering admitting them. And a kidney stone, you will make the decision based upon whether they can tolerate pain or tolerate fluid. So you might be considering admission until you realize they can now tolerate pain. They're able to ambulate. They're no longer vomiting. We have good follow-ups, return instructions discussed, and they're now safe for discharge. Consideration of admission is just highly valued on these guidelines. And declaring it in a way that you considered it will be valued and acknowledged. And the opposite is also true with de-escalation of care, by the way. De-escalation of care, if someone has a catastrophic brain injury and maybe have some herniation, maybe there's a conversation with a neurosurgeon and then a decision not to transfer to a tertiary referral center and a more of a palliative care approach. That, again, is another example of the bedside time that we do all the time. Escalation of care, I went through kidney stones, but how about something that's more common with the heart score? We have a conversation of shared decision-making. Are we going to stay in the hospital or are we going to go home? Are we going to escalate care? Are we going to de-escalate care? I think all of those conversations have their place in the medical record. I think regardless of any guidelines, they belong in the medical record. And in this case, specific to escalation or de-escalation of care, they're highly valued. You mentioned something a moment ago. I said, I don't want to get too much into this, but you've said it, you've said it a few times, and that is complexity of problem addressed, data, and risk. I know we don't want to get too much in coding and billing, but how they are graded or the points that you get or the credit that you get, complexity of problem addressed, data, and risk. And we'll put on the show notes, we'll put a chart that goes into the great detail on this because it would you know take way too long to go through all of it. But big picture, what does this mean? Happy to share the medical decision-making grid for you to put online for everyone to take a look at. When you see it, the first thing you'll see is that the level one code, there's a bunch of NAs because the level one code, 99281, is going away. The definition involves skill that doesn't require the need of a physician. So that in and of itself should get a smaller number of visits. Anything that requires the skill of physician, it generally will start with level two. You will see those three columns and it's complexity, problem, dress, data, and risk. And the way the coders will take a look at this is you will have you have definitions of the problem list, which is the problem addressed, which could range from something that is a stable acute illness under the low category to something that's chronic illness with severe exacerbation or progression on the high category. And there are definitions for each of these things. The data involves ordering tests, maybe not ordering tests with a description as to why. It involves looking at old studies, the things we've already talked about. Some of it's physician-driven, which would be the documentation of why certain things are not done, but also something the coders would pick up just because you're ordering studies. So if you order a CBC chemistry and a urinalysis, that's three tests under a data category for category one. And I want to not get too deep into that, but the data category overall represents quantitative, clear counting of things that are done in emergency medicine all the time. So the complexity problem addressed is more focused on the nature of the presenting problem, why the patient is there, what the concern or presentation means and potential risk to morbidity and mortality. Data involves what you're doing with the patient. And then there's a risk category, which sounds redundant to COPA, but is more complexity problems addressed. 
but is the risk category is a little bit more specific towards things like prescription drug management, care limited by social determinants of health, and a decision about surgery, minor and major. And there's stuff in there that affect the risk category. And the way you get to the final code is really, it's just the top two of the three of the three categories will define the final code set. I think for everyone listening, the most important thing is that coders are there to code the chart and we just have to focus on patients, which is what we love to do. If you want to get deeper into this, just go to the website, look at the look at the grid. And as we close up, I want to get to a couple of cases and hit something simple here is medication refill. That is something where you really don't need a ton of stuff, but there's actually some thinking that goes into it. What kind of exam is required for that? What do you need to put in your document to fulfill what your decision-making actually is. So, I mean, I, I would feel compelled to document all kinds of things on a medication refill. So I, I guess I need to get this up to a level whatever and put some things in here. How would you approach that now? It really comes down to what the medication is and what the clinician feels comfortable documenting for the exam. I think based on the guidelines, I would just go back to the initial quote, which is the nature and the extent of the exam is determined by the treating physician reporting the service. There are lots of physicians that might do things differently, and that's okay. Well, Jason, this has been so interesting. I mean, it's a, a true sea change on the small level, you know, how people document. But on the, on the big level, I think that this is going to impact wellness and just the experience of work. I agree. And it's amazing how fast medicine evolves and science evolves. And these guidelines have had a 28-year gap. So it would be expected that there'd be a significant leap forward. The take-home points that I see when I read these guidelines and have this conversation with you and look at what we do every day when we're at the hospital is that, number one, the history exam are no longer in the discussion of coding guidelines. Two, your differential and your comorbidities add complexity to care. And if you document that, it is rewarded or credited within the guidelines. Number three, I think just for accuracy, anytime you receive information from a non-patient source, we want to give credit attribution to that non-patient source. And that could come in the form of a non-patient historian, family, EMS, caregivers, law enforcement. It could come in the form of discussion with consultants or inpatient physicians, or referring physicians. Or it could come in the form of reviewing non-ED records, whether it be inpatient records, old echocardiograms, old studies, images, EKGs, all that. That's all history that you'd want to attribute to a non-patient source that you use to actively treat the patient. It's refreshing to see that treatment or testing considered but not performed is credited in the same way as if it had been done. For low acuity complaints with an x-ray that's not being done because of the Ottawa rules, or maybe a CT that's not being done because of PCARN or PERC. It's refreshing to see it with prescription drug management, with maybe you aren't giving an antibiotic, or maybe you are not giving a certain pain medication. You would be credited as if you did. And I think that creates a higher quality of medicine, a lower cost medicine to the patient. And as you mentioned earlier, better patient care. Independent interpretations are those studies of which we are acting upon when we do our interpretations, and documenting that supports the quality of care that we provide every day, whether it be an EKG, maybe an ultrasound, or other diagnostic study. Social determinants of health, if you're at a site that sees patients who have determinants, it's worthwhile to document the work that you do for these patients. It raises visibility and captures the work being done in a meaningful way and perhaps can change national health policy, but they're also it's also rewarded at the chart level. Anytime you consider admission or de-escalation of care, that's one of the highest risk things that we do. Documenting the shared medical decision-making, the heart score conversation with patients, that really does offer a lot of value. And it really is another example after consideration of testing but not performing, examples of bedside conversations that are valued on these guidelines and in most cases, belong in the medical record, regardless of the guidelines themselves. So I think there's more alignment now of contemporaneous modern medicine to these guidelines than there had been 28 years ago. We didn't get into this, but is there any change in the critical care time? 
Stay tuned, Rob, because this is an ongoing conversation. For the 2023 year, there is a disagreement or inconsistent statements between the American Medical Association and CPT that create guidelines and then CMS, which also weighs in on these rules. And there is, as of this date, 100 days before the new year, a lack of alignment on that second 30-minute code of critical care and how that will be addressed. So the final rule from the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule will be released around Thanksgiving, and we'll have an update for you. This conversation has had a tone of, this is really an improvement here. Is there anything that you see in this guideline that is maybe not an improvement or perhaps even a step backwards? These guidelines had me with the nature and extent of the history and exam is determined by the treating physician. If that was all these guidelines had, I would be a happy man. We'll see where these things land and what it means. And they'll obviously be a learning curve for everybody. But coming from where we were, I think this is a huge improvement. Jason, always a delight to chat with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate your time. And that's it. That is it for today. For more information on one-on-one coaching, to get complete show notes for this episode, learn more about the Awaken Aware Conference in Sedona, Arizona, or just check out what we're up to because there's all sorts of stuff. You can find it all at our website, roborman.com. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking. <laughs>